Our guest today is Will Ratcliffe. He's an associate professor in the School of Biological Sciences at Georgia Tech. His lab studies the evolution of multicellularity as well as social evolution and general evolutionary theory through combining mathematical modeling, synthetic biology, and de novo evolution. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show today. I'm a huge fan of your lab's work, and I wanted to start with the core of your lab's work, which seems to be on multicellularity. Mm -hmm. And so there's a huge range of phenomena that we include under the umbrella of being multicellular. Could you maybe overview how this is typically categorized? Yeah, that's a great question. And also, thank you so much for having me on. And that's, I'm very flattered. You can't see in the, you can't hear in the podcast. <laughs> you can't, you can't see my facial expressions when you said you're a fan of our work, but I, I'm very flattered. Thank you. So yeah, multicellularity is a funny term because people mean different things when they say it. <laughs> Most people sort of mean something that's a paradigmatic, large, complicated organism, like their dog or tree that they see outside their house. And so, you know, plants, animals, fungi, those are kind of the multicellular organisms that we're all the most familiar with. And I think probably all of our listeners could identify those as multicellular organisms. But multicellularity as a process is kind of simpler than that. And, you know, multicellularity involves single-celled organisms forming groups, and then those groups of cells becoming evolutionary units, such as such that they, they reproduce themselves, they have variation in multicellular traits, which affects their evolution. Natural selection begins acting on those multicellular groups, and they can, you know, in some cases, evolve progressively increased multicellular complexity by gaining more multicellular features and traits. And so if we look at sort of the whole sweep of multicellular complexity on Earth, we know that this sort of phenomena has happened over 50 times independently in different lineages, many times in the green algae, like about 25 times just in green algae. They love to evolve multicellularity. <laughs> um, but it's happened in all three domains of life, bacteria, archaea, and eukaryotes. Eukaryotes really kind of ran away with the ball, but the very first organisms to evolve multicellularity um, were, were bacteria, uh, at least that, that we know of. Um, and so yeah, you know, the, the term itself is one that's a little bit freighted. And you know, so we've got different conventions in the field of differentiating complex multicellularity from simple multicellularity or clonal multicellularity, things that basically uh, grow from a single cell bottleneck and have genetically identical cells in the group versus aggregative multicellularity, things that like, a, like a, a lot of bacteria and slime will do this. They'll live as a free living cell and they'll swarm together to form a multicellular group, which then usually differentiates into some stock, you know, stocked uh, sporangium. <laughs> um, hmm. And so it's very diverse. And the word multicellular um, does not describe all of the phenomena. It doesn't capture all of the different phenomena uh, across the whole sweep of different types of multicellularity that exist. But it does say one thing in common, that there is a sort of a multicellular phase in the organism's life cycle, and that that multicellular phase evolves through natural selection and gains adaptations. Um, right. But sort of beyond that, they're, they're almost very different things. Like if you're talking about multicellularity in a filamentous cyanobacteria versus multicellularity in an animal, they're really different. You know, they, they sort of maybe share one small thing in common, but they differ in so many different ways. Right. 
I guess in that sense, there's kind of a distinction that you need to draw between what is multicellularity and what is like developmental biology. And that like to explain how an animal produces all these organs and in the right locations, that's kind of beyond the bounds of multicellularity, would you say? Uh, I would say those are examples of those kinds of multicellular traits uh, that I was right. described. Like, you know, developmental regulation is a multicellular phenomena that has a nice genetic basis and natural selections acting on the organism as a whole, but that's correspondingly acting on the genetic mechanisms that allow for cells to interact with one another and produce morphological innovation. Right. And so that's an example of something which has evolved, you know, over a 600, 700 million year time frame. You know, it didn't take that whole time, but that's about when animals got going. Um, you know, it, this has evolved probably over a period of 50 to 100 million years. And, you know, there's a lot of rounds of sequential sort of information being added to the system over those generations of natural selection. Um, and yeah, and so, so, you know, very few lineages have achieved that level of sort of, you know, developmental regulation. Plants certainly have, land plants, which are just one type of green algae. There's many <laughs> others. Um, some of the other macro algaes, so red algae and brown, brown algae, so the kelps that you see when you're at the ocean, those also have uh, somewhat complicated developmental regulation. Some fungi do, they're mushroom forming fungi that have different cell types and, uh, you know, nice spatially explicit differentiation and development. But outside plants, animals, seaweeds, and fungi, um, there's definitely development, but but it's, you know, like an order of magnitude less complicated. Right. Okay. So would something like you mentioned, like clonal versus aggreg aggregative, those kinds of mm -hmm. categories, mm -hmm. are they widely used to categorize multicellularity or are, are there like multiple parallel categorizing methods? And if so, how does that help the field? That's a great question. I, I would say the clonal versus aggregative is maybe the first distinction people tend to make other than maybe complex versus simple. Um, it turns out that all the like complex are the ones that we just described, plants, animals, seaweeds, and fungi. Um, and simple will be everything else. It turns out that all of those examples of complex multicellularity are also clonal. Um, not all clonal organisms, multicellular organisms are complex though, but all mm -hmm. complex ones are clonal. Right. So the most common ones are complex versus simple, clonal versus aggregative. And then, uh, and this one often sort of ends up, so you can see there's, there's some conflation between these different metrics. <laughs> and then another one that's sometimes used is um, obligate versus facultative. So an obligate multicellular organism is something which pretty much spends its entire life cycle in a multicellular phase. Animals and plants are a great example of that. Um, there isn't like a, a phase in the life cycle of an animal where there's a bunch of single cells swimming around and then they decide to become multicellular again. But a lot of organisms do have that kind of life cycle sta stage. Right. And um, that doesn't necessarily perfectly map to clonal versus aggregative, but it tends to. Most things that are clonal tend to be obligate. <laughs> Most things that are aggregative, I think by definition, are facultative. Um, but you could have something which is clonal and, and facultatively multicellular. It's a single-celled thing, and then when it forms groups, it forms them clonally. That's possible. It's just pretty uncommon. And there's a good reason for that. So, so, so the reason, the sort of ec the ecology of being an aggregative multicellular organism tends to be very different than the ecology of being a clonal multicellular organism. Clonal obligate multicellular organisms are the things that tend to evolve a lot of, they, they evolve a lot of multicellular solutions to the problems they have. 
if you're always multicellular and your cells are clonal, and, and there's a reason why clonality is important for the evolution of complexity. Um, clonality among your cells means that your cells don't have to worry about social cheating being really an issue. If you're, if you're teaming up with other cells from the environment, if they can do something which increases their growth within the organism, even if the organism itself doesn't do as well, that can often be advantageous, especially if those cells remain, retain the ability to divide and the group then dissolves and single cells go back into the environment. It's also helpful for essentially developmental processes, building up sort of between cell mutual information. If you, know, you think of development as the process of orchestrating and communicating amongst cells that, okay, under these conditions, I do this, you do that. Okay, then the next step is you do that and I turn into this. You know, making an embryo requires a lot of finely tuned orchestration. And if you know exactly who your social partner in the future will be, you can build up a lot of um, between cell mutual information and which is encoded in the context of genetic mechanism. If you don't know who your future partner will be, it's just some random strain from the environment and it's different every generation, that sort of forces you to be a social generalist. You can evolve traits that work well with many different partners, but it's unlikely that you'll have the opportunity to evolve this sort of accumulated set of, of mutually interdependent traits. Right. And, and that's needed for complex organisms. So clonality, you know, we think that there's a good rationale for why clonality favors the evolution of long-term, of, of, of organismal complexity. Um, and so getting back to what I was just saying a minute ago, sorry for the <laughs> tangent, um, clonal, obligately multicellular organisms tend to evolve multicellular solutions to their particular problems. They evolve, you know, motility and life cycles, which are all based around a multicellular morphology. So there's a lot of scope for natural selection to, to, to drive them into new places that were never explored before by single cells. For things that have the opportunity to live as a single cell, but then will form a group under certain environmental conditions, they have a very different relationship with, with their environment, right? These are things like slime molds that when they're single cells, they're amoebae and they're crawling around, they're eating bacteria, then they starve. And when they starve, there's, there's no reason to be crawling around looking for food that's not there. And so they'll you know, form a multicellular phase and, and in the case of some of these cellular slime molds, it looks like a slug. And then that slug will literally move like an animal through the soil. And this slug can be composed of many different genotypes of cell. It'll move through the soil. It's, it's usually going uh, away from CO2 and towards light. So it's probably going up to the surface of the soil where it then turns into a stalked sporangium, which is thought to essentially increase the dispersal of the spores of these, of these uh, mm -hmm. slime molds. So there's a really cool rationale for why you want to be single-celled and in a very different environment, a cool rationale for why you want to be multi-celled. And, you know, they can evolve single-celled and multi-celled traits to respond to different type parts of their environment. Um, and so there's sort of less context, less rationale, and less opportunity for natural selection to take the multicellular phase of that and just, you know, over millions of generations, spin it up to very high levels of complexity. Whereas there you know, there would be for like a plant or an animal, which is pretty much always multicellular, except for maybe a little, mm -hmm. a little brief phase in reproduction when they have to reset the, reset the genetic diversity of their zygotes and go through a single cell phase and then grow a group off of that. Oh, okay. But like, there's a small possibility, but has it ever happened? Has something gone from being aggregative to clonal? Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. That's a wonderful question, and I'm stumped <laughs> by it. Um, we could tell, we could infer it, 
if you were to look at a phylogeny and find something which is clonally developing and you could see that it was nested within a larger clade of aggregative organisms. Mm -hmm. To my knowledge, I cannot think of anything that has that specific transition. However, within aggregative organisms, we see something which is similar. You'll often find that they evolve mechanisms to increase the chances that they're forming groups with relatives. So some sort of kin recognition mechanisms. Um, and there's, again, really good evolutionary biology reasons for this. Um, so, so basically, the two most common uh, studied organisms for aggregation are a slime mold and a, and a dictostelium discoidum is the model system there. It's within the dictostelid cellular slime molds. And then um, there are these bacteria, the myxococcus, which have been multicellular for over a billion years. It's a really old form of multicellularity. And they have kind of a similar ecology to the slime molds. When there's food around, they actually cooperatively hunt like a wolf pack. They, they basically run around chasing bacteria, excreting loads of toxins, which make them explode. They suck up the food from that. And then when the food runs away, when food goes away, they form these uh, multicellular fruiting bodies. It's not on a stalk this time, but it's still a fruiting body in response to starvation. Um, and both of these have a single locus uh, kin recognition system. And so there's basically one, one gene and they you know, preferentially bind with others that, have, uh, that are similar at this, at this one locus. So it's not perfect. Single locus kin recognition systems aren't great because you know, every single time you go through meiosis, if you're sexual, not really a case for the bacteria, but for the, for, the, uh, for the slime molds, every time you go through meiosis, you kind of decouple the connection between this one gene and the rest of your genome, right? It's only providing 50% of the information value after one generation of meiosis and 25% the next generation. But still, it's better than nothing. And it can increase the probability that you're forming groups with relatives, which reduces the potential for uh, cheating and exploitation. And, and it also does something pretty important, which is that it allows for natural selection acting on whole groups to sort of have a closer connection to the genotypes of the cells inside that group. I can unpack that. Mm -hmm. so, so one of the fundamental challenges for aggregative organisms is that if we're talking about this, this transition in multicellularity being you have groups and those groups become Darwinian replicators. Groups divide, they make new groups. There's heritable variation in this population of groups. Some have traits that increase their group level survival or reproduction. Others are not quite as good. And now, you know, those, those are selected for naturally. That's natural selection, right? And they'll increase in frequency. And there has to be a, a mechanism of heredity underlying that, that group level trait. Um, and if there is, then you can basically be driving a change in, you know, a heritable unit like, like genes, genotype frequencies, or alleles, like we like to say in evolutionary biology, versions of a gene. By selecting on whole groups, you're now move, you're changing the frequency of the genes which underlie those group level traits. And so you have natural selection of group level properties. In clonal organisms, the connection between a multicellular phenotype and the genes of the cells in that group that could create that phenotype, is, it can be very, very clear. For example, we work on these multicellular yeast, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon, um, that form these branching structures. And they get to a certain size before they can no longer grow any bigger and they break in part because they run out of room to put new cells. And then they, they try to, and it breaks the whole group in half. But if you, make, if you put in a mutation that makes the cells longer, then that changes the way that cells pack in three-dimensional space. And they can get bigger before they break. And so now we have the cell level mechanism. It's a mutation which only directly affects the property of a cell. It makes it longer, but there's an emergent multicellular phenomenon. You grow to a bigger size before the group divides. 
And so natural selection acting on groups can change the frequency of these genes in a population very quickly because it's just favoring bigger groups, which is a common thing in multicellularity. And now you're basically selecting for mutations which give you bigger groups. And there's this perfect correlation between, maybe not perfect, but there's a very high, to use a technical term, covariance. Your readers, your, your listeners don't need to really know what that means, but <laughs> there's a very high covariance between the fitness of groups and the, and the genetic properties of the cells in those groups that, con that, that affects that fitness. So selection acting on groups can, can, can drive changes in the frequency of genes in a population. If your mm -hmm. groups are composed of a random sampling of the cells in the population, then even though some groups may be bigger than others, and you can select upon those, maybe they have higher, sur higher survival and you select upon them, if, if, if the frequency of the cells in that group is no different from the frequency of the cells in the population as a whole, then selecting on the group doesn't do anything at all. It's not changing the frequency of these genes in the population. It's just sort of this random effect. Does, does that make sense? That does make sense. So selection for multicellularity occurs on groups, not individuals. It, exactly. It allows for, it, it requires selection on groups to be sort of the, one of the major forces driving evolutionary change. And in order for that to work, the, free, the, the groups can't be composed of randomly selected cells from the population. They actually have to be preferentially enriched for different, different kinds of genotypes. And the reason for that is that if you basically, let's just say there's two different kinds of genotype in a population. So long-celled ones and short-celled ones, right? If, we have a, if, if they're at 50-50 frequency and we have them being randomly grabbed into groups um, and the groups are pretty big, so the sample in the group is a pretty good estimate of the sample in the population, then by, ch you know, by, by chance, some of these groups are gonna be bigger than other groups. But if you're selecting on the biggest groups and throwing away and killing the smallest groups, but the gene, but the cells in those groups are just a nice random sample of the cells in the population as a whole, then selecting on groups doesn't change the frequency of these genotypes in your population at all, right? It's, it actually doesn't doing anything. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we had the big, if, if the long-celled cells formed the biggest groups, now we could select on the biggest groups, throw away the smallest groups, and we've increase the frequency of our long-celled genotype, reduce the frequency of our short-celled genotype, and now there's been an evolutionary change in the population. There's been a change in genotype frequencies as a result of group-level selection. And so aggregate of multicellular organisms kind of face this problem of how do they increase the, the filtering of the genotypes that get into their, into their groups? Because if their groups are open to all, then selection acting on groups just isn't really very efficacious. You also have this problem of cheating, but even aside from the problem of cheating, you just have this problem that group level selection gets weaker and weaker, the more the identity of the group resembles the population as a whole. Group level selection gets more and more powerful, the more distinct the genetic identity of the cells in the group are. And so clonal multicellular organisms just from the very beginning have like put the lever to you know, they've turned it up to 11 in the parlance of, a, of Spinal Tap. They've made groups 100% only one genotype, right? <laughs> and so you can't get any more exclusive than that. And that makes selection acting on groups very, very powerful. Right. Okay. Sorry, that it's, was pretty esoteric. <laughs> I hope that's that comprehensible. That's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. Um, experimentally, how do mm -hmm. we know that selection occurs on groups and non-individuals? 
Yeah. So it's a funny thing. You say the word individuals and there's a whole huge philosophy of individuality, um, a philosophy mm. of science, uh, trying to understand what we mean by the term individual. And there's different schools of thought here, but the, the, the definition of individuality that I really like was actually a Darwinian level of individuality. So Peter Godfrey Smith uh, developed this idea of Darwinian populations and Darwinian individuals about 12 years ago. And his argument is that if you look at a population of replicating things, then whatever unit of selection fulfills these criteria for Darwinian evolution, it replicates, there's variation in that, in, in, it, in it, some of that variation is heritable and natural selections acting on that variation because they intrinsically reproduce more or die less, then there will be evolutionary change at that level, right? That's, that's true for biology, it's true for chemistry, it's true for computer programs, it's true for ideas, cultural evolution. This is just an algorithm. It's a fact of nature. <laughs> um, and so whatever level we are talking about here, it could be replicators within a cell. It could, it could be mitochondria. It could be cell level replicators. It could be multicellular groups or it could be groups of multicellular organisms like whole bee colonies or termite colonies. Whatever level we're talking about, they can all in fact have Darwinian individuality. And Darwinian individuality is a very useful way for thinking about, for thinking about sort of what is an individual because Darwinian individuality is the, it's both a, a process that can easily be determined in any system. I could go to a system and see if we're getting at, you know, evolution adaptation occurring at a specific level, right? And similarly, it is the process which imbues that, that level of biology, that level of, well, we'll just state biology, that level of biology with adaptations. It's what builds in design. It's what builds in information, right? Natural selection mm -hmm. is the process which imputes information into biology. And so you can get cell level adaptation with natural selection acting at the level of cells, but you can get multicellular adaptation with natural selection acting at the level of groups. And so um, how do we know that, that that's been the process that's responsible for multicellular adaptation? For, 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 sorry, how do we know that multicellular adaptation is the process that's responsible for multicellular organisms and the complex traits that they bear? Well, to one degree, it's kind of the only process which we know of, which could give rise to that level of sort of organismal sophistication and integration and traits. Um, and, you know, we know that multicellular organisms have evolved from single-celled ancestors because, you know, we can, we can sequence everything and we can see how it fits into a phylogenetic tree. And we know that animals are nested within a clade of unicellular organisms that dates back called the holozoans, in which there's many single-celled relatives that still exist. And, you know, we can sort of roughly date the branching on that. It's about a billion years ago. You know, we, we know that plants nest within the green algae. We know that fungi nest, I mean, multicellular fungi have repeatedly evolved from within fungal tree. You know, so we know that multicellular organisms have been evolving from single-celled ancestors. And to one degree, you know, we're pretty confident that it's selection acting on whole groups because that's kind of the only mechanism that, that we know of that would allow for adaptation at this multicellular level. On the other hand, we can also do laboratory experiments, which, uh, which look at sort of the, these dynamics and processes, which in nature have been occurring for hundreds of millions of years. And we're just looking at the end point of these very long running natural experiments. We can do you know, much less impressive experiments in the lab where we put organisms through thousands of generations of directed evolution and see them changing and adapting at the multicellular level. I say less impressive because we're never gonna 
recreate animals or plants, right? Like these are the most complex runs of, of natural experiments and multicellularity we'll ever have access to because they've been going on for so long. But we have total knowledge and information about how this works when we're in the laboratory. So our laboratory is, is uh, I'd say, one of the leading groups doing this kind of research. We have a, a long-term evolution experiment going to take single-cell baker's yeast and evolve multicellularity from it. And we're currently on about generation 6,000 of this experiment that I hope will run for maybe another 30,000 generations. I want to see this out to the end of my career. It's one of those things where if I don't push them as far as we can in terms of making them more complex, I'll always have regretted not, not doing that. And um, I could tell you more about our experiment and what we're learning and how it illustrates this process, if you'd like. Yeah, well, where did the idea for a long-term evolution experiment come from? I know the original experiment was done by Richard Lenski mm -hmm. looking at E. coli evolution, but where did the inspiration come from to adapt this for multicellularity? Yeah, so so I will also say that uh, you know Rich Lenski's uh, long-term evolution experiment in E. coli, which is hugely inspiring to us, and completely confident that I would not be here talking to you today if if he did not exist. So our our science is completely contingent upon the science that that he's been pioneering for the last thirty years. Um, He's done now 75,000, maybe 78,000 generations of E. coli evolution. They're single-celled E. coli. They're still single-celled. There was never any desire to make them multicellular, and the experiment wasn't done with that aim in, aim in mind. But it was established to essentially allow us to study this process of evolutionary change over very long timescales under highly controlled conditions, where the entire experiment is is cryopreserved, you know, in their case, I think every 500 generations, and you can go back and actually resuscitate the actual ancestors of future things for the entire duration of the experiment. So in principle, kind of any question that you'd like to interrogate, you can, because you have the entire evolutionary history at your disposal. And actually that, that system, you know, he started that in, I would, I suppose it's the, the 90s. Um, Genome sequencing wasn't a thing, you know? So, so many technologies have come online since this experiment was started. And it's really actually profoundly influenced uh, what we've been able to learn from the experiment. And so I think that's actually, you know, one of the cool things about these kinds of long-term open-ended directed evolution experiments is it's a way of generating hypotheses. Often we don't, you know, scientists love to use hypotheses to frame their research. But in order to propose a hypothesis, you already have to have a candidate explanation for, for something. You have to understand it pretty well before you can get to the point of issuing a hypothesis to test. And in areas where science is still, you know, in its early stages, it's still developing. I think multicellularity is kind of an area of that. Then we often don't know enough in order to propose clear hypotheses because we haven't even thought about the system in long enough have generated the hypotheses. Mm -hmm. So experimental evolution often actually is a way of developing hypotheses, which then you can you know, very rigorously test and then connect to the, to the sort of comparative biology framework that others are developing, studying multicellularity and all these different lineages on, on, on the planet. And so it's actually very powerful in that way and that you can sort of get these insights into the, the dynamics of how things work, which makes sense of the world around us, but without having sort of seen it happen, you wouldn't have even thought to look or ask the question in a specific way. Right. I, th I think that's interesting and that there's a lot of discussion now about like hypothesis-driven research versus mm -hmm. like, technology-driven research. Mm. For example, like mm. a lot of things that people are doing with CRISPR now are mm -hmm. kind of like things 
no one could have ever thought that we could do with science, right. but after it was invented, then people had these ideas. It's just interesting to think about the way that it all works. Definitely. And I, I think uh, there's a sort of idea that hypothesis-driven research is like the only way to be rigorous and avoid a fishing expedition with your data. So I think to a certain extent, there's been this sort of, uh, you know, push away from exploratory research and really towards hypothesis-driven research. And both need to kind of coexist, right? Like mm -hmm. our own research is both exploratory and hypothesis-driven. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Some of our experiments we've started purely because we have a pre-existing hypothesis arising from evolutionary theory. Some of our experiments are, you know, are very exploratory and others are hypotheses that have been generated from exploratory research, which we then rigorously test. So I think, you know, you want to, science needs both exploration and hypothesis-driven approaches. If we only were to do hypothesis-driven research, we'd, I think we'd slow down, right? Because yeah. we'd just be confirming or um, supporting, I should say, or uh, disproving ideas that we already have. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so in terms of your original question of how do we get into, <laughs> into doing long-term experimental evolution, um, this whole project came about um, when I was a fifth-year PhD student at the University of Minnesota. I was in Ford Dennison's lab doing plant bacterial symbiosis research. And I had this wonderful chat with uh, another evolutionary biologist, Mike Travisano, about like, what's like the coolest thing that we could do in the lab, you know, origin of life, <laughs> totally. But we don't, we're not chemists. We're not quite, we don't know how to do that. <laughs> all right, all right, you're, you're right, you're right. Um, how about multicellularity? Oh yeah, that'd be cool. And so, you know, we had this fun discussion, caffeine fueled discussion. And then I was back in the lab and I was playing around with, you know, some yeast and trying different ways of selecting on group formation. And pretty quickly, uh, you know, Mike actually had the idea for settling selection. I had tried some other stuff that didn't work and that worked. So settling selection is the way that we evolve multicellularity. We select on this, on group size itself as a trait, but we don't like go through the microscope and pick larger groups. We just use gravity to be our filter. You take a, take a subsample of your population, put it on the bench for five minutes, take the bottom of the pellet, passage them to fresh media, everyone else is killed, and you just repeat that. And any mutations that arise that give you bigger groups, they're, they're favored by group level selection. And it's, it's dead simple and it works really well. And so, uh, you know, so I, I graduated and I did a postdoc with Mike and really sort of built out the beginnings of our snowflake reach, uh, yeast research. We both still work on it. Um, and he's since kind of focused on the first steps of the transition, the genetics and the ecology of how groups form. And our lab is kind of focused on the latter steps of the transition. So doing long-term directed evolution to understand how simple groups of cells evolve to become more complex and sort of how, you know, the, the dynamical process of how selection acting on multicellular groups, how that plays out if you just continue pushing the envelope. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Well, could you maybe go a little bit more into your long-term evolution experiment? Absolutely. Oh, and I forgot to say that Mike did his PhD with Rich Lenski, the oh. long-term E. coli <laughs> scientist. So there's a very clear connection to that uh, scientific mm -hmm. family tree. And, and Rich has been really helpful and supportive of our, of our research over the years. Um, yes, yeah, so the person who's led, we call our long-term E. coli, uh, our long-term yeast experiment, the MULTE, M-U-L-T-E-E, -E, and that's a play on words with Rich Lenski's long-term evolution experiment, which is the LTEE, -E, long-term evolution experiment. And so, you know, but also multi, 
sounds like multicellular. So it's a pretty cool little pun. Uh, sorry to explain the joke. <laughs> I guess it's not that good if I have to explain it. Um, and this has been led by a scientist in our lab, um, Ozan Bozdog, who's a, a research scientist um, who actually solved some of the some of the fundamental technical constraints that were preventing our yeast from undergoing long-term adaptation. And so we're on about generation 6,000, and, and, and the selection procedure is very simple. You know, we take, we actually started out with a single cell yeast and we deleted a gene in it. And this gene is required for daughter cell separation during the cell cycle. So when you delete this gene, it's called the ACE2 gene, you get these sort of fractal trees growing from your yeast cells. They, they look, you know, I don't know if you have show notes, but I could send a picture over so that our, our listeners could, uh, mm -hmm. could, could visualize it. Um, but, you know, they form these branching structures, which uh, grow in three-dimensional space. And, uh, you know, they have an emergent life cycle. So they grow to a certain size before um, the cells sort of push against each other and jam. And that causes a breakage in the chain of cells. And when you break a cell-cell connection, it's just like cutting a branch off a tree. Like that branch no longer has any connections to the group, and it floats away. And actually, as a result of this, there are single-cell genetic bottlenecks embedded in this life cycle because the cell that's at the bottom of that branch is the parent of every cell downstream from it. Directly connected, connected to it are its daughters, and then connected to them are its granddaughters, and connected to them are its great-granddaughters, and so on. And so if you imagine this branching tree growing, mutations will occur within one branch, and then that entire branch becomes all mutants. And as soon as you get a breakage occurring between two mutant cells, now you have a mutant-only propagule which has a single cell genetic bottleneck at its base, and mutations are segregated out between groups as they arise. And you know, we've sort of done the math on this, and we don't expect very much coexistence of mutations within groups. We think they actually segregate out into their own groups pretty quickly um, relative to the sort of generation time of group growth and group breaking you know, relative to the rate at which new mutations arise. So the way we've done our selection is this dead simple protocol that I described before, where we just you know, we do this, this race to the bottom of a test tube, big things sink, sink faster. And that selects primarily on organism size. And size is this trait that we think is kind of fundamentally important for multicellularity. There's often ecological opportunities, just one step up on the ladder of size. Uh, you can imagine the single cell world's very crowded, but there's all sorts of new things that you can do when you're big. And we have a, a recent review that I think is pretty accessible uh, for, for even a lay audience if they'd like to read about this, where we identified 10 different selective drivers of, of simple multicellularity. And these kind of bin into a few different categories. One would be protection. You know, you get protection from filter feeders that can only eat single cell prey. You get protection from external uh, toxins. Another is increased motility. A lot of things swim better or can, can crawl faster in groups. And then another is increased efficiency of uh, nutrient consumption. So collective metabolism often benefits from concentrating a bunch of producers into one space and having them make a very high concentration of some enzyme. And so multicellular organisms can often benefit through sort of collective, you know, cooperative metabolism. So there's a whole bunch of different reasons why early organisms would evolve to form groups. And in many cases, size plays a key role in this. And in fact, we tend to think in the field that size is often a trait that's easily under selection and if you just pull on size, you're going to begin to pull your organisms into a, into a, into a state space that's, that requires a lot more refinement to be effective. Like, you know, we, we actually wouldn't care about multicellular organisms if 
they were just a giant blob of undifferentiated cells, right? We'd be like, oh yeah, that slime ball, who cares, right? Like we care about them because they're complicated because they have interesting multicellular adaptations that, that allow for cellular differentiation and, and cooperation, right? Um, I mean, that's why we're literally able to talk to each other. <laughs> we have brains, we're multicellular, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so Andy Knoll, a paleontologist at Harvard, who's done some really nice thinking and writing on early multicellularity, sees size as this kind of leading trait that then creates opportunities for further refinement. Once you're big enough that nutrients can't diffuse into you, you've got to evolve a circulatory system and a way of transporting nutrients. You know, and, and I sort of, you know, that's just one example, but I, I, tend to, I tend to agree with this, that I think size is kind of this trait that's easily selected for, and you can get complexity out of this without actually having to specify what kind of complexity should arise. You let the organisms figure it out, but you sort of pose a, a challenge to them. You know, get big or you're dead. Coming, getting big is not easy. Getting big requires a fair amount of refinement, performing you know, tough multicellular bodies that, that resist breaking uh, at, at size scales that single-celled life has never seen before. They're not used to dealing with strains that act over millimeter length scales. They're used to dealing with strains that act on micron length scales. They're very different, right? So you've got to figure out organismal biophysics. You've got to figure out pattern formation and how to grow big bodies. And then there's all sorts of refinement opportunities for circulatory systems, locomotion, nutrient consumption. Uh, you know, all these things are, are there as opportunities for these organisms and if natural selection you know takes them down that path then you can kind of get this sequential accumulation of multicellular adaptations that's needed to sort of evolve something which has complexity and so this is what we've done we select on size it's a dead simple experiment and our yeast have evolved to be 20,000 times bigger uh, over several thousand generations of this experiment and they actually figure out some really cool biophysical principles to get there so in order to get big, our, our, our yeast groups are actually very weak. <laughs> They're a sort of uniquely weak material. If you break any one cell-cell connection, the whole group breaks because they're, they're kind of like a tree, right? Imagine a tree where as soon as you snap a branch, everything downstream from that point where you broke the branch comes apart. It's kind of a weak, weak material. It's very fracture prone. And so um, initially our yeast evolved to make their cells more and more elongated. And pushing their cells to be more elongate, sort of imagine you're building a, a tree-like shape with ping pong balls. If you're building it, those ping pong balls are going to get kind of densely packed pretty fast. You're not going to be able to add the next one because it's all kind of crowded. And you're ping if you have to jam a ping pong ball in there, it's going to break. If you make the same structure with hot dogs, it's kind of fluffy, right? It's taking up a lot of three-dimensional space. And actually, that means that these, these groups can grow to be a lot bigger before that jamming transition occurs. And they get hard and rigid and now adding another cell causes them to fracture. So initially we see them, you know, spending a few thousand generations making their cells longer and longer and longer. And at the cell level, they're evolving mutations, which affect the cell cycle and the duration of the, of the phase of the cell cycle where they're growing longer and not wider and not, not larger in all three spatial dimensions. Yeast have a cool uh, feature of their cell cycle that there's a phase of the cell cycle where if you kind of sit in it, they just get longer and longer. And so they're, you know, basically messing with the cell cycle, getting longer and longer cells. And then we see this sort of phase transition where they go from being, you know, maybe a few thousand cells to being like half a million cells per group, way bigger. 
And it, what it turns out they're doing there is they're actually entangling, their cells get long enough and, it, and we think there may be some changes in the, in the way that our cells are attached in the geometry of the group to maybe a small degree, but the main thing is their cells are getting longer and that, that allows the cells to actually wrap around each other. Now, if you, I live in Atlanta, I'm always fighting English ivy. If you've ever had a, I guess you're in England, so you probably know your English ivy too. Yeah. If you've ever tried to pull like ivy off a fence or something, it's nearly impossible, right? It's a very mm -hmm. difficult material to remove because it's entangled and the vines are wrapped around many other vines. And so if you pull on one vine, you're pulling on the five vines it's connected to and the five vines they're connected to. And all of a sudden you're pulling on a thousand vines. And so to break it requires that you break many, many connections. That's exactly mm -hmm. what happens in our macroscopic snowflakes that they basically evolve this entangled morphology and they become 10,000 times tougher as a material. They go from being weaker than gelatin to as strong and tough as wood. And anyway, I can keep going. So, so <laughs> I'll just give a brief summary. Uh, I don't wanna spend too long on a monologue here. After they've been doing this for a while, uh, recent results that we have suggest that they're actually evolving a simple form of cellular differentiation as well. This is unpublished data. It's not even on the bioarchive. So, you know, take it all with a grain of salt. But we've done single-celled RNA-seq. This is led by a graduate student in my lab, Kai Tong. And um, we basically see, you know, one cell type in the ancestor. There's kind of, they're all, all the cells are kind of doing the same thing. They're just dividing, they're growing. And that turns into three cell types by the time they've been evolving as these macroscopic snowflake yeast for about a thousand generations. And uh, one of the snow types, putative cell types that arises is something which is preferentially upregulating cell wall biogenesis genes. And if we fluorescently stain for cell wall components, only a small subset have a lot more cell wall components. And those actually tend to be these cells that are deeply branching cells with lots of connections off of them. And that's actually where we think when our snowflake yeast break, that's where a fracture occurs, is that these sort of hub cells with lots of connections. So it may be that they're preferentially strengthening those, those connections, the sort of hub, hub, hub cells in, our, in, in the network, which would be really cool and would be a pretty slick way of increasing the mechanical strength of the, the group as a whole. Mm -hmm. And then um, after they've evolved these entangled clusters that are very, very large and very, very tough, they evolved to have very high rates of programmed cell death, which is kind of a paradoxical thing, right? We're talking 25% of the cells like committing suicide, very high rate. And that doesn't make a ton of sense at first pass, right? Why would, why, would, uh, why would we have cells commit suicide? That doesn't, I mean, we have our cells commit suicide all the time and there's good reasons for it. Is there a good reason for it here? What we think, and again, I wouldn't put too much confidence in this, but this is our current thinking, is that uh, you know, after they've evolved entanglement, they form these very tough groups that are wood-like in their strength. And it actually breaks their intrinsic mechanism, their intrinsic life cycle. Earlier, they grew these, you know, these sort of fractally branching grafts and would jam and would start popping branches off. And that's how a group reproduces. And it's actually very important that our groups reproduce. Um, one thing that I haven't emphasized so far is that in our experiment, they're grown in a 10 milliliter population, but the settling selection only occurs in a one milliliter population, subpopulation from that whole big population. So there's you know, a bunch of clusters in a tube they're growing for 24 hours, then they do this race to the bottom of the test tube. But only 10% of the population even gets to compete in that race. And so if you're this big group that never divides, but has is banking on high survival, 
you still only have a 10% chance of even getting into the survival race in the first place every day, 90% chance of simply being left behind and killed. And so the groups have to create new groups. They have to reproduce. Otherwise, they're an evolutionary dead end, like no question about it. So entanglement is great because it makes a very tough and strong group, but it breaks their mechanism of, of group reproduction. And they're no longer you know, spontaneously popping branches off. And so we think and, and that in, it takes about a thousand generations, at least that's the resolution of our sampling, about a thousand generations after entanglement evolves, they evolve very high rates of program cell death. So program cell death isn't just a consequence of being in a big group. At first they're in big groups and there's, there's, there's very little. A thousand generations later, it skyrockets. And it seems like from our experiments that these things are actually breaking off small branches from the periphery that the program cell death acts to kind of sever connections. If those connections sever in the interior of this big group, it doesn't really do anything because it's all entangled. But if it happens on the outside edges where these things are not very well entangled, then they're just shedding little tiny four cell propagules. And indeed, in, in these um, macroscopic snowflake yeast with high rates of program cell death, we are seeing a huge cohort of tiny, tiny offspring, which simply don't exist before. So it may be that they're kind of using the secondary behavior of program cell death as a way of generating a, a new life cycle. They broke their old life cycle and they have to evolve a new one. Wow, that's very interesting. And I think it's really interesting that they, like they form these entangled structures. Is this seen commonly in biology given that it's like so tough or that's not such really? a good question. It's honestly very understudied mm -hmm. entanglement is I've done all of my physics side of our research uh, with Peter Junker, a uh, soft matter biophysicist here at Georgia Tech, who's really wonderful to collaborate with. I think he's my longest running collaborator. <laughs> um, and, um, and it turns out that, you know, when we started, when we discovered that entanglement was happening, we started to read the literature on this. And there's a lot known about entanglement from a pure sort of granular physics perspective or polymer physics perspective. Um, but not that much is known about in biology. Not very many people seem to have looked for it. Um, but it's a pretty easy, you know, sort of uh, property of a bulk material to evolve uh, for, for living organisms. For non-living things, you have to imagine they have to have some way of sort of wrapping around each other. So, you know, you can do this with staples. If you do an experiment, we take staples, toss them in a beaker, shake the beaker on a, on a you know, vibrating table, then you can you know, stick a stick in there and pull the whole blob out because the vibration kind of gets them all to intercalate and wrap around. But you know, there's only a certain regime uh, in which entanglement will occur. Uh, and and, and you, know, you have to have some mechanism of movement usually to, to allow it to happen. In living organisms where cells can just grow around each other, it's super easy. <laughs> you know, it's, it actually makes it so much easier if cells can just like grow past one another. So there's, I mean, most, and most people that have looked at entanglement are looking at subcellular levels, but in terms of the, the properties of macroscopic structures, very little has been done. There's a possibility that rhinoceros horn is, is entangled fibers of keratin because mm. um, it's basically modified hair. <laughs> very, very tough material. You have the potential for entanglement in some plant uh, tissues. Um, although a lot of them in, in, in canonical plants are just like kind of a grid of, of fused, tough um, you know, thread threading materials. But then, then often in plants like oaks, you have all these crazy cell types that are moving at, at right angles and through the otherwise vertically aligned uh, vasculature system of, of, of wood. So there's lots of opportunity for entanglement. 
I'm sure it's happening in fungal colonies. I'm, you know, like hyphae are just wrapping all around each other and make, you know, so I'm sure it's happening, but very little effort has gone into rigorously characterizing it and examining it as a mechanism of making structural robustness. Mm, okay. This is a, a call for other biophysicists to <laughs> do more entanglement research. Yes. And these, this entanglement, it's created because there's permanent cell-cell bonds between the yeast? Definitely. Yep, that's an important right. part of it. Um, mm -hmm. So if you have permanent bonds, then you kind of need that for entanglement uh, to work. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, that's actually going back to our earlier conversation in multicellularity, another way to slice it is whether the bonds are permanent or reformable. And you have very different kinds of biophysical adaptations that result from that. Again, that kind of nicely lays over clonal and aggregative multicellularity, but not necessarily. It's not 100%. But typically, aggregative multicellular organisms have reformable bonds where they're having, you know, bind, they have basically proteins which will bind onto other cells and grab onto their cell wall or cell surface. Whereas a lot of clonal multicellular organisms, uh, pretty much all of the complex ones, except for, for animals, have permanent bonds between mother and daughter cells. So mm -hmm. much like our snowflake yeast, plants, green, uh, you know, plants and red alga and brown alga, the seaweeds and fungi, they all kind of grow in a similar manner with daughter cells budding off of mother cells and, and, and then just staying there, right? And giving you these sort of branch networks. Right. Yeah. Well, going back a little bit to, I guess, more quote unquote, simpler multicellularity, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, it's evolved independently multiple times in history. Does this mean that it's pretty easy to evolve multicellular life? It's a good question. Um, tentatively, I would, I would say yes. I think it is. Mm -hmm. I think it's a relatively easy thing to evolve. I think, uh, you know, it's easy to get cells to stay together and form groups. I think pretty much any single-celled organism, give or take, that you have, you can figure out some way to make them form a group. <laughs> you know, that part, mm -hmm. that part's definitely easy. Right. And then I think what we've seen from our, our yeast system, right, where we have one mutation, which results in a branching growth form, and then biophysics kind of comes in and scaffolds the rest of this multicellular life cycle, and it's not evolving and this like a lot of these important steps in their life cycle don't evolve because they're beneficial to the organism they're just a consequence of physics so you know we have a mutation so that daughter cells stay physically attached to their mother cells and they're permanently attached and we get these cool branching groups which grow to a certain size before they you know before packing packing forces cause them to split in half and so now we have this, this emergent life cycle, which didn't evolve for a reason, but it's, it's there. So now we have one group, you come back the next day, there's a million groups that all look just like the original group. So you have this beautiful Darwinian, you know, that, that allows for sort of Darwinian processes to begin playing out at the level of the group. Then we have, life, we have a bottleneck in this life cycle, right? Because at the base of every branch is a single cell and everything downstream from it in that group and in its branches is a clone of it. And so now as mutations percolate through these branching things, you're getting breakages occurring between mutant cells. And now you have, now you have groups that differ genetically entirely from others in the population. And we have this cool possibility for, you know, essentially interactions between those cells in three-dimensional space to relate. Again, physics provides a, a sort of way of relating the properties 
of the microstate, that is the properties of cells, to the properties of the macrostate or the sort of emergent properties at the whole group level. So an example I gave before is once you have these little snowflake clusters, if you make the cells longer, you get bigger groups because you change the way the cells pack. And it turns out that it's even more rich than that, that if you have cells taking up space in three-dimensional, cells take up space in three-dimensional volume, then given sort of, you know, given that you have a certain number of cells, there is a statistical distribution derived from a, a principle of maximum entropy in physics that describes the possible arrangement that those cells could have in your multicellular organism. And some arrangements are much, much more likely than others. And so if you basically change, so, so that actually gives rise to sort of this nice emergence at the level of whole groups from the properties of cells. So if you use a mutation to perturb the properties of cells, you can have a very robust emergence of properties at the level of whole groups, which actually imbues it with a certain amount of, of heredity. And so whole group level properties, which natural selection is seeing and acting upon and driving the evolution of novel group level traits, can have very high heritability in a biological context. In fact, we've done, we have a paper on the bioarchive if you want to read about heritability. And we actually assessed the heritability quantitatively of cell level traits evolving cellular elongation and of whole group level emergent properties evolving how big these groups get before they break. And the emergent group level properties are more heritable than the, than the effect of these mutations on the cell shape itself. Even though there's no developmental biology going in there and ensuring that sort of multicellular groups build in a certain way, that's the way that modern organisms kind of do it. You have developmental systems that ensure that information encoded in genes is translated into novel multicellular morphology. Like we're, we're nowhere near that with snowflake yeast. They're just dumb clumps of cells. And yet you have heritability as, as just, a, it's a part of the system. And there's a physical underpinning of that. So we think that's a general feature of clumpy life. So you have, you know, a single cell that with one mutation has a life cycle, which imbues heritability, multicellular heritability to mutations that affect the properties of single cells. And what we've seen with our long-term evolution experiment is that you can take that and you can continue pushing it for thousands of generations. And they keep adding novelty. They keep, they continue to sort of evolve at the multicellular level. They don't just get a little bit of the way there and stop. They're continually adapting. And the sort of, there is no end to the innovation and novelty that, that mutations create that natural selection can then filter upon. So, I mean, that's again, one of the reasons why I'm so excited to see what happens over the next 30 years is how far can we push the system? How complex can we get our little lab creatures, snowflake yeast? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting thinking about going from these kind of dumb clumps of cells to mm -hmm. more complex life forms. Is there mm -hmm. any roadmap or any current understanding for how that might happen? That's a good question. Um, let me just kind of say one more thing about the last topic before I move on to that, okay. which is because plants and fungi and green alga and red alga and brown alga, like plants are green alga, but like a lot of these things which have evolved complex multicellularity, when you infer phylogenetic or you look back at fossils, their early multicellularity, they actually kind of resemble snowflake yeast. They form little branching structures. Mm. And so I think actually a lot of these sort of emergent physical scaffolds for a life cycle and the emergent heritability of multicellular traits, these things, I don't think they're a weird artifact of our system. I actually think they're a pretty general sort of type of emergence, which likely played a role or at least potentially played a role in these other transitions to multicellularity in nature. Mm -hmm. Animals, we don't really know what their early 
multicellular ancestors looked like. And right now they have they have non-permanent connections primarily between cells. Some are permanent, but most aren't. Um, but we don't really know if that's a derived trait or ancestral. There's there's much to be learned about the early the early traits of animals. Mm -hmm. So okay, so moving on to your new question. Um, is there a roadmap for understanding how complex life would arise? Not really. And, and one reason for that is that like every lineage in which you have experts that are really knowledgeable. So for the metazoans, it's um, metazoans are basically animals, right? You have Nicole King, Anakiri's trio, Amaya Dudin, um, a bunch of people that Nicole has trained over the years, too many people to list that work on quantum flagellates, a sister taxa of animals. Um, Actually, we have a book out if you'd like to, <laughs> to read. We have a recent book in which many of these people wrote chapters. So uh, you can read about it. You can find my Twitter and you don't have to buy it. We put, uh, we put non-copyrighted preprints, uh, paper versions of every chapter on Amazing. the web. So yeah, science <laughs> for the people. You don't have to be rich to be able to, to, to learn. Mm -hmm. um, so it's 200 bucks by the book. It's too much money. <laughs> that is a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so to one degree, like multicellular organisms, when it, when it comes down to like the specific traits that allowed them to, to do the thing they do, you kind of have a reverse anacarenina problem. Like in anacarenina, you know, uh, unhappy fam happy families are all like unhappy families are, uh, they're all unhappy in their own ways. Multicellularity is kind of the unhappy families. Like every lineage has kind of done it in their own ways, which depends on both the cell biology of their ancestor, the single cell ancestor, and the environment they're in and the types of selection that they're under. And so, you know, this, the ancestor of animals has a very, very different genetic toolkit than the ancestor of plants. And they put these things to use in very different ways. So to a certain extent, we kind of understand how different lineages have done it. We kind of know how animals have done it, although there's a lot to be learned still by looking at their closest single-celled relatives. And the more we look at these organisms, the more we realize that these things which last shared a common ancestor of animals way back like a billion, 1.2 billion years ago, they have a lot of the genes that animals have, which are used for development. Like those things are all out there in these other non-animal lineages, right? And so it either suggests that some of this developmental innovation was predated the origin of animals or that these things were used for different purposes and then were repurposed for multicellular development. And we don't know the answer to those questions. We need to, to do more comparative biology. Mm. And you know, technological re revolutions you're mentioning, Things like CRISPR are actually taking these non-model organisms and letting you do, you know, uh, genetic work with them, which is which is really important. Uh, you know, we kind of know how it works with plants. We kind of know how it works with red alga. We sort of know how it works with brown alga. We definitely know how it works with like Volvox, a green algae. Mm -hmm. So, and it's and there's and there are some similarities, but a lot of the genetics are are just quite distinct, and the traits that they create are quite different between these lineages. So in that regard, the way that snowflake yeast do it, I think will be genetically very idiosyncratic. Like, I don't think that we're going to see a recapitulation of animal development or anything resembling that. I think that the sort of the pathways, the, the types of multicellularity that it's going to evolve is going to be its own unique branch of, and it might compare interestingly to fungi, but it's going to be its own unique branch of sort of that, you know, reverse anacarenic problem. Right, and in terms of following the evolution of multicellularity, what role do phylogenetic trees play? It's an incredibly important part of the entire uh, set of approaches that we use. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So, you know, understanding the phylogenetic placement. So a phylogenetic tree is, is sort of a giant family tree of how things are, are, are related, allows us to know when and from what multicellularity evolved from. And so that kind of context is critical. And it allows you to do things like compare animals to their closest relatives, the quinoflagellates, and then do comparative biology and say, oh, if quinoflagellates have the same genes that animals had, that suggests they were inherited by a common ancestor. And so their common ancestor contained these things and it lets you kind of root when things evolved and maybe gives a little bit of insight into how things may have been repurposed. And it's really important. Like it's, it's an essential tool for understanding how multicellularities evolved across many different lineages on Earth. So that's like comparative biology writ large is sort of this approach. Um, and, and you can do similar things with with, with any multicellular lineage. So, uh, you know, we've, uh, people have done this with, we have not, but people have done this with fungi and sort of like, you know, shown that it's, it's, uh, it's likely that complex multicellularity in fungi has evolved like eight to 11 times independently, <laughs> but using the same tool, genetic toolkit, which is, which is really cool. Um, so you can, you can sort of get insight into, into how things have played out, but where these comparative approaches don't really tell you. It doesn't tell you much about evolutionary dynamics. It doesn't really tell you how life cycles get going. It doesn't really tell you how groups become units of selection. It doesn't really tell you how um, fitness is aligned between the interests of cells and groups and how groups evolve traits that suppress lower level selfish interests. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't really inform the evolutionary dynamics and process as much as the history and patterns and macro scale unfolding of multicellularity. And so, you know, I think you really need to bring both together into a more holistic understanding of the process. And, and a third tool that's really useful in there is theory and computation. And, you know, I, I know a, a lot of people, there's sort of two major flavors of, of mathematical biology. One would be modeling, and that's sort of taking a system that you understand and putting it into a simpler version that's completely transparent in math world, and then seeing if it behaves the same, maybe extending what you've done in experiments once you've validated that it seems to reflect the basic essences of, of what you've seen in, your, in, in the complicated world of real biology. And then you can also do theory. And theory, I, I differentiate from modeling as sort of an exercise of structured logic, you know, using first principles to derive more general uh, connections and, 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 and rules uh, and, and the way things work, you know. And so that's also a really important part of this whole big picture is, you know, we can do, we can understand the way that things have unfolded from the comparative method. We can use experiments to better understand the dynamics of how this plays out at the single generation level or the thousand generation level, but the, but the phylogenetics is looking at a billion generation level, right? So that's like really zoomed out. And then theory can help sort of buttress some of the conclusions that you derive from a small number of model systems in the lab to say, well, this is what we expect to occur because of these broader reasons. And, our, and now we're slotting what we see in both experiments and the comparative biology into a framework from first principles understanding. And that makes the whole thing so much stronger, right? Because now you have sort of mm -hmm. these cross-connecting ties that hold everything together, right? Mm -hmm. For example, theory would predict that clonal development should favor the evolution of multicellularity. And we see that playing out over the comparative record, right? Like all of these lineages of complex multicellularity uh, stem from clonally developing lineages. 
And we see that playing out in laboratory experiments in our lab when we compare clonal development to aggregation, that clonal groups readily become units of selection. And most of their fitness increase comes from increased multicellular fitness. It's adaptation at the multicellular level. Whereas if we do experiments with the same genetic source, a single cell yeast, but they aggregate to form groups rather than developing clonally, they primarily adapt as single cells. And so you don't see this shift in the level of selection. You don't see this transition to multicellularity. And so now we're kind of, we've done an experiment looking at the dynamics, which connects to theory and it connects to the comparative record. And now we're pretty confident. That, yeah, clonality is important for certain kinds of complex multicellularity. Right. Have you found this to be pretty easy to do, like integrating theory and modeling as well as uh, the biology and experiment? Like, does it come very naturally to you and your group or has it been a little bit of a challenge? Um, it's come pretty naturally, uh, mm -hmm. I'd say. You know, I, I wasn't trained with too much theory, although I, I think five of the six classes I took in grad school were math or stats classes, because I was like, I need to learn more of this. <laughs> I need to be trained yeah. in this area. Yeah. And so I, uh, I sort of, you know, and I did some, I did some theory in grad school, though, frankly, it wasn't great. Uh, and then, but I, when I found in my lab, I knew that that was a really important part of what I wanted to do. And so I invested a lot of time and energy in both proving my own skills there and collaborating with really good theorists like Eric Libby, um, who's a longtime friend and collaborator at the University of Umeå and mathematician, um, as well as physicists who, you know, use uh, various mixtures of computation theory sort of to, as, as a longstanding tradition in, in, in their field. Um, so, you know, for us, it's, it's always been important. And I, I really like it. Like, I, I find mm -hmm. deep satisfaction in mixing theory and computation with experiments and, and with synthetic biology, too. So, you know, like, I often use theory as, as my rationale for a hypothesis, right? Like I'm, I have this hypothesis because we have this expectation from a broader set of, 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 of theoretical considerations. Um, and then I often use theory in my experiments. If you read my papers, a lot of them have like a model at the end. <laughs> it's mm. a really typical way that our lab writes papers <laughs> is we do a big experiment and then we finish with a model. And for me, this, I often, I often use this as a tool to essentially provide an independent test of the hypothesis that was being examined with the experiment. Because in, if you can basically take the logic of the way things work in the experiment and simplify it all down into this really you know, mechanistic mathematical world where there's no confounding factors, you know, it's just a really simple version of the world, and then show that the same behaviors that you qualitatively see in your experiments, you see in the, in, in, in the theoretical version of it, and you can, you know, iterate over all these different, you know, you, you can do so many different versions of that experiment with, with math that you can't do in real life because it's hard. And you can show that it's really robust and that, you know, even with all these assumptions being changed, it still holds. To me, that's really satisfying because it, it shows that this idea is more general than just the experiment that we did. And it provides a strong independent confirmation of the experimental result. So I really like it for that reason as a, as a sort of another way of, of approaching a question and showing that, yeah, the thing we're talking about is probably real. You know? Yeah, I do think that's one of the main reasons why I enjoy your lab's papers so much is oh, just wonderful. because of the way that's all integrated. Nice. But personally, nice. I struggle with doing it because like mm. I studied biochemistry and then mm -hmm. I have much, much of like a maths or theory background. So it's difficult mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. 
I think branch out into those areas. It totally is. You know, my, my advice is to take some classes and, and learn to code and play around and then collaborate with a friend who's a theorist <laughs> and, mm, and like right. get him excited about your, your bio, you know, theorists, honestly, um, they love, they love a good puzzle, right? They love, <laughs> they love a good problem. And so if you have a buddy who's a theorist and you can be like, you know, Hey, look, 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 look this is cool. Here's what we don't know. Here's what we do know. Would you, you want to collaborate? You know, you can, you can probably in, in type, get them in, intellectually interested and then get them to, to join in on paper with you. That's, what me and me and Eric have done that for a decade. It's, it's been great. Um, yeah. So now I wanted to discuss um, kind of adjacent but still related field of research that your lab participates in, which is social evolution and social interactions in microbes. So first of all, what is microbial social interaction? Yeah. So social interactions in general is the sort of biology of how organisms or, you know, we'll call them Darwinian individuals, how Darwinian individuals interact, where the behavior of one Darwinian individual affects the fitness of another. There's a very broad sort of definition, right? And, and in that definition, kind of every living organism is, is social because we're always interacting with other organisms. Um, and a lot of this research has been sort of came, started in the world of multicellular ecology, and then maybe starting in the early 2000s, got a lot of momentum about sort of porting over into looking at the social world of microbes. Initially, people used to think, you know, microbes are this paradigmatically asocial organisms. You know, they're E. coli, they sit there, they eat sugar, they poop out waste products, that's it, right? Mm -hmm. And then it turned out that the microbial world is, is extremely interestingly social and pretty much every behavior that you can kind of imagine happening in the macroscopic world happens down there too. Lots of cooperation, lots of conflict, lots of interesting behaviors. You know, you even have sort of a altruistic suicide bombing type behavior in bacteria. Um, and so the full spectrum of social behavior is on display in microbes. And, uh, and I, I did my PhD doing social behavior of, of bacteria, <laughs> looking at how uh, rhizobia evolved to cooperate or cheat legume hosts, where they would enter root nodules and fix nitrogen or take plant resources and not fix much nitrogen with it, but use it for their own purposes. And then at Georgia Tech, I collaborate with Brian Hammer. Um, and this is a pretty small part of what my lab does. And so I should really give most of the credit to my collaborators here. Um, but we look at sort of social interactions in space and how do, how do microbes that grow in, in biofilms, you've probably heard that term, a lot of microbes are living on the surface of things in, you know, densely packed communities where they're both cooperatively consuming uh, and excreting met met metabolic proper, you know, stuff. And a lot of them will facilitate the growth of others and, and, and break down stuff from the environment, which any local bacteria can consume. And they're also going to town on killing each other. <laughs> so virtually all of the antibiotics that we have isolated that we use for our own bodies to protect ourselves against bacteria um, were you know, evolved by bacteria as weapons. And then we just identified them and started to synthesize them. And so you know, bacteria have had three and a half billion years of, of close combat to refine these weapons. And they're very good and they're very diverse. Um, the one that we primarily focus on is a contact mediated type of weapon. So most of the antibiotics that people study are things that bacteria excrete out into nature. 
And that's, that's good because that's, you know, we want to grow them in big vats and siphon off those antibiotics and then purify it. And now you have penicillin, right? We're studying something called the type six secretion system, which is literally <laughs> a repurposed phage tail spike. So like a harpoon, which is ballistically shot out of a cell and it has a antibiotic loaded onto it. It punctures uh, a neighboring cell where it delivers this payload and will rapidly kill competitors that are not themselves. They happen to have an antitoxin just downstream from the toxin. And so if you stab your clone mate, they're fine. I mean, probably fine. They're not dead. It might slow them down a little bit, but they're not dead. And so, you know, maybe five, six years ago, we started looking at the uh, spatial dynamics of this. And we realized uh, that if you have a population which is initially well mixed and they start to start to kill each other, they actually undergo a phase separation, kind of like oil and water separating out. Because if you're surrounded by others that you can kill or be killed by, that's a very unstable scenario. And so you end up getting these sort of well-mixed systems turning into almost a sort of, it looks very blobby, kind of like a lava lamp. If these populations have these you know, irregular borders, but, the, but the, the domains of clonal groups get bigger and bigger and bigger through time. Um, and further, we actually found that there's this really interesting result that, that this, this type of phase separation can actually play into the evolution of cooperation in a sort of surprising way. If you have like two multiple strains that are very well mixed, it can be hard to support the evolution of a sort of altruistic behavior. Like I'm going to make a bunch of enzymes at individual cost, send them out into the environment, and then anyone around me gets the benefit of them just as much as I do. If competitors get you know more benefit than you do, three competitors get as much benefit as you do, then, then that's a trait that probably hurts you more than it helps you, right? They're going to increase their growth more than you are, and therefore you're going to lose. But if those other cells that are right around you are also um, enzyme producing relatives, then, then your genotype can really benefit because you're all growing really fast now and your number can increase a lot. And so there's sort of this spatial tragedy of the commons that bacteria just commonly face because they have to digest all their food outside their cells. <laughs> and um, they often live in dense, well-packed, you know, well-mixed environments where competitors also get access to those things. And if you can increase, if, if these cells can increase their genetic relatedness of neighbors, they sort of solve this problem, this, this, this collective action problem. Um, and so it turns out that type six killing, which also allows you to take over some, you know, it's a very, very aggressive behavior of like taking over a competitor's territory also results in the creation of large domains in space that are only occupied by one strain. And that can actually support the evolution of co other cooperative behaviors because they're now surrounded by relatives. And we, we did a big metagenomic uh, survey and basically found that the, there was a strong correlation between the number uh, of different ways of use of, of toxins within a single genome of, of killing competitors. You know, if you only have one toxin, antitoxin, anyone else of the same one, whether they're related to you or separated by a billion years of evolution, they're gonna join your group. If you have 16 different toxins, mm -hmm. then the other cell has to have 16 different you know, antitoxins, pretty likely that they're just a relative and, and not some stranger with the same you know, antitoxin profile. And so we, we see this very, uh, we can basically explain a lot of the variation in the percentage of these organisms genomes that are dedicated to secreted, potentially cooperative products as a function of how much they, how many ways they have to kill their neighbors with this type six secretion. So it really does look like these, you know, these, these bacteria bristling with, with, with offensive weapons are also the most cooperative with their own 
clone mates. So it's very xenophobic, actually. So, <laughs> Bacteria. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. When, I, when this paper came out, I emailed uh, Carl Zimmer about it from the New York Times. I was like, hey, Carl, check mm-hmm. out this cool work. And he's like, cool. I don't know if now's the right time in the national <laughs> climate. If you want to be like talking about xenophobic bacteria. <laughs> but cool stuff, man. <laughs> yeah. But why why are they so aggressive? I understand the need for diverse weapons, but why are they not just all like bacteria sins, like something that's diffusible and then a toxin? Like, why do you have to have this whole spike that literally yeah, punctures yeah, yeah. another cell? That's, that's a good question. Um, I don't know that anybody really knows the answer to that. Again, you could use theory to generate some predictions about the conditions where you'd expect different types of uh, toxins to be more effective. Mm-hmm. So for example, in something where there's a lot of water mixing, diffusible toxins may not be that helpful, right? So you're a Vibrio cholera, you're sitting on a little tiny piece of marine snow falling through the ocean, and you're making a diffusible antibiotic, and you know it may just diffuse right off you into the slipstream of your marine snowflake. But if you're just stabbing cells that are right next to you, yeah, you're fine, right? Like it's going to work. Uh, or, you know, you're a bacterium sitting on a, a, a rock in, in a rapidly flowing stream. I bet diffuse antibiotics are pretty ineffective. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, bacteria have many, many different ways to kill each other. And this is just one of them. Um, actually, we never really published this paper, but we played around with some models showing that diffusible antibiotics will also drive phase separation. But interestingly, it's not as efficient. It's um, the length scales, depending on the length scale over which it acts, it can actually be, it can, it can, it's the, the ability for it to um, drive phase separation can really, can really d- diminish. And mm. you know, basically it, a type six killing is like diffusion distance of one cell. So it's kind of, you can put it into all one class of models where you just say one cell all the way up to a thousand cells or whatever. And uh, it, if, if you can have very crisp boundaries with very strong selection, that, that works really well. And if, and if you're affecting hundreds or thousands of cells, potentially probabilistically with every molecule that you produce, then the, then, then the sort of impact of that can actually be quite muted. Right, yeah. right. So, it seems like bacteria compete a lot. <laughs> There's certainly no question about that. Yeah, and that reminds me of a review that came out recently um, by the Foster Lab, which gained a lot of traction on Twitter um, and discussing the prevalence of competition compared to cooperation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they argued that weekly competitive interactions are the most common bacterial social interactions mm-hmm. um, and that they rarely work together in general. Do you agree with the, the kind of conclusions that they drew um, or not? Yeah, I mean, so I, I don't have super strong opinions on this, but I'll tell you what I think, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is that I agree with the conclusions that they've drawn from the data that they analyzed. Like, I think that their conclusions are a correct summary of the studies that exist on this topic. And, um, to, to be fair, most of these studies in which people are looking at interactions between soil bacteria as they have, or bacteria from wherever, guts, soil, tree stumps, you name it, right? They get these bacteria and they figure out, and they basically do all these combinatoric interactions where they put them together, they grow them for a while, and then they ask, did they grow more 
and they, you know, you get a big matrix of growth with every other possible competitor or, or other strain. And then were some of these interactions positive or some of them negative, right? And, you know, what they typically see is that on balance, most of these things are commensal or weakly competitive, right? Some sort of, you know, it's not great to have another strain in your group. You would have done better by yourself or having another cell there did nothing, right? But rarely do you see facilitation and, you know, Benefit, benefits to both strains, sort of a, a mutualistic cooperation. Um, and Sarah, I, I remember seeing this come up on Twitter and um, I thought the discussion was really good and I'm not deeply in the field of microbial community ecology, assembly and mutualism. I, you know, I, I like to work on the dynamics and the mechanisms, but I, I don't feel like I have a super strong horse in this race. I'm really, <laughs> I really see myself as primarily a multicellularity guy. Um, but I thought Sarah Mitri had some really interesting uh, comments. And, you know, one of the things that she pointed out was that the conditions in which these experiments are done are actually conditions that tend to favor, you would expect, based again, kind of on theoretical considerations, you'd expect would favor um, competition and not facilitation. So, you know, we tend to think of um, high species diversity favoring competition, low species diversity favoring cooperation. And a lot of these experiments are done at higher species diversity. You expect the conditions under which you give them lots of food and the ability to grow fast, typically that should favor competition. Whatever can just eat the food fastest is probably going to win. And there's a certain amount, there's a fixed amount of resources. So why cooperate? Just eat the food, right? Eat the sugar. And, you know, these experiments are usually done using rich media, whatever, whatever grows. You know, we tip, most my, environmental microbes don't culture well in the lab. Most are non-culturable, meaning they actually need probably other microbes to interact with. This is kind of what we think about a lot of these non-cultural bugs is that it's, it's interactions with other bugs that creates some metabolic precursor or, or, or thing that they need. So they're evolving to the, having a certain biotic ecology. You pull them out of that, they don't grow anymore. And so these experiments are biased again towards using the bugs that can grow without any kind of facilitation. And so you might see more cooperation if you were to look at all microbes, not just those that can grow in the lab. Um, and also people tend to think that harsh environments would favor cooperation, you know, non-stressful environments may, 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 you know, which is kind of rich media would again, favor just rapid growing weeds without, without much cooperation. So again, I think the experiments that we can do easily are the kinds of experiments where it's easier there's some intrinsic biases to the, to, to the process. It tends to favor, you know, prototrophic, so bugs that have their ability to make everything they need. Or, you know, when I say bugs, I mean, sorry, bacteria. It's a shorthand amongst microbiologists. <laughs> uh, but it, you know, it tends to favor fast-growing microbes that don't need symbiotic interactions uh, to grow. Uh, and so, you know, among those, maybe competition is truly the main thing. And, but if you were to look at everything, maybe you get a different picture. It's not really clear. And, you know, the good news is I think the field is aware of these things and people are interested in it and people are working on it. And I think in the next decade or two, we're going to have so much more data and people will have tried to, you know, I can, I can just imagine it now, right? Writing a grant to the NSF saying, mm -hmm. You know, we don't understand these fundamental rules of microbial interactions and so far it really looks like you know competition is the is winning the day but all these experiments are fundamentally you know intrinsically biased because of the way in which they're done so here's this cool method that i have that doesn't suffer from the same biases and mm -hmm. you know can i get a grant and i could see people being really interested in that and 
I suspect people are already writing those grants. So mm -hmm. um, I would I would imagine that we're going to have much more data on this in the relatively near term. Right. And it's helpful, you know, we, some of the technologies have, you know, facilitate this too. So, so droplet technologies have come a long way. Sequencing is getting cheap. Barcode technologies where you can just basically make huge libraries and make, make barcoded versions of things. That's, that's come online as a common tool for studying ecological uh, interactions. And I, I don't know, it just seems like a, and, and even just statistical techniques for looking at sort of co-occurrence in different environments and co combined with, you know, metagenomic sequencing and things like that. I, I assume that people will begin exploring those approaches as well, which gets you out of a, a culture, a culture-based approach. So I'm optimistic for getting more information on this, but bottom line, I think what uh, Jacob Palmer and Kevin Foster said is an accurate assessment of what we know. But I also think that we know that those, that the experiments that have been done um, don't tell the entire picture. So there's more to be learned. For sure. Um... Yeah, and I wanted to also ask you a little bit about your just personal background, how you got into this field. So mm -hmm. yeah, how did you become interested in studying multicellularity? Uh, again, it was that conversation with uh, with Mike Trevisano where mm -hmm. it was we were just brainstorming like what's a cool what would be the coolest thing we could do, you know? And after mm -hmm. dismissing Origin of Life because it was too hard for us non-chemists, you. I hang out with some Origin of Life people. They're really, really cool. And mm -hmm. I just don't have the chemistry chops. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, <laughs> if you want to understand how chemistry becomes Darwinized, you have to be both an evolutionary biologist and a chemist. And I'm not a chemist. Um, but multicellularity, that was the second thing that we sort of discussed. And that was back in 2009, maybe. So it's been a little while. And we both were like, yeah, that would be super cool. And then we kind of started thinking about what we could do. And once the experiments started working within a month or two, I was like a fifth year PhD student at the time. Like, man, I better write my thesis. <laughs> I better <grab> <laughs> I want to work on this. So mm -hmm. wrote my thesis in, a, in, you know, mostly to staple together papers and, <laughs> and helped uh, Mike write a NSF grant and got that funded and did a three-year postdoc with him and then moved to Georgia Tech to start my own lab on it. Amazing. What kinds of big questions in this field do you hope to answer with your work? I mean, I'm interested in how simple things become complex, right? I would like to know how a dumb clump of cells evolves into something with developmental integration. Like that would be the holy grail for me. Like I would like to have, by the time I retire, uh, you know, in 2050, I'd like mm -hmm. to have snowflake yeast with legitimate cell types and genetically regulated development and a really interesting life cycle that's sort of, you know, like tuned by information transfer among cells and a somewhat regulated life cycle. Like, I, I think that would be super cool to watch crude, you know, start out with no development. And what we have now, I think, is crude development, with like three cell types arising, but it's almost certainly stochastically induced and, and not the result of communication and, and developmental integration and watch that get refined into something which is much more robust and has more information content, that would be amazing. Like that's, <laughs> I, would, I would love that. I'd also, you know, I wanna see how they become, 
how they continue to, to make more biophysically tough organisms, cells. I want to look at trade-offs between you know, cell level traits and group level traits. Are these things driving, are they becoming entrenched in a multicellular state? Because the more adaptations they get for being multicellular prevents them from reverting to single celled life. And honestly, that's exactly what's happening so far. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, if the past is any predictor of the future, if you ask me in five years, what do you expect to see? What do you hope is possible? I'll have a very different set of answers because honestly, I don't think I can imagine what they're going to do. So far, what they're doing is stuff that I could not have, I, I had no inkling that this would occur. Entanglement, no idea until it happened. Mm -hmm. Cell type differentiation of the kind they're getting kind of makes sense in hindsight, but I would have never predicted it, right? Like, and that's really cool about the system, right? Is that I don't necessarily have to be shooting for a specific thing. We just want to, I want to push the system in a way that I know is a fairly general thing that, you know, pull on the lever for size and see how they refine that, right? Mm -hmm. I'd like to see how they break trade-offs between cell level and group level traits. A lot of the adaptations that they're evolving are moving them along trade-offs between sort of like, you know, yes, you can get bigger, but it's going to slow your growth in these common, you know, in this way, right? Oh yeah, there's some diffusion limitation, right? And I'd like to see how they actually evolve multicellular solutions to these ancestral trade-offs and get around them. Can they evolve something like a mechanism of avoiding diffusion limitation? We've mm -hmm. done it with a circulatory system. Pretty much everything does. How do they solve that problem? Like there's all sorts of really interesting challenges before snowflake yeast. And I am very curious to see how they solve them. Amazing. Uh, finally, do you have any advice for for aspiring scientists or aspiring evolutionary biologists? I do, yeah. So I actually took a little time to think about this and I wrote out, <laughs> I wrote out an answer. <laughs> so I have six things that I want to say. <laughs> Amazing. So uh, I won't take too long, but um, just for context, this is aimed at like people considering a PhD or in the early stages of their PhD. Uh, but if anyone wants to chat, give me an email. You know, if, you, if you're listening to this and you're an aspiring scientist and you want to ask me a question and get advice, by all means, just Google my name. You'll find my email, write me an email or find me on Twitter. I'm happy to chat. Um, all right. So first advice is getting a PhD is a marathon. Uh, and there's a lot of ups and downs. I felt that way as a student. I see it in my own students. Typically there's like enthusiasm in the first year. Oh, the second year is really hard. Plus you have quals. The third year, you feel like you've been in this so long and yet you haven't published any papers, but then you start to publish papers. Fourth year, you're like, hell yeah, I've got a paper or two out. I know what I'm doing. Fifth year, you're like, crap, I have to graduate. Oh no. And then I have to have a job. And then you get really stressed out again. That's the typical arc. Um, but there's a lot of ups and downs. And one piece of advice I have here is to seek ways to average out the bumps the, both the peaks and the troughs, right? So that you just don't get flung by the extreme so much. I learned to do this because I'm a person of a certain age watching President Obama. I was just astonished at how he could have both huge, as a campaigner, huge setbacks and huge wins. And he was just basically placid with both of them. And, uh, you know, celebrate your successes, but also kind of realize that there will be lots of ups and downs and figure out a way to sort of tamp down on some of the chaos of that. All right. Second piece of advice, uh, make the effort to learn skills when you're still a trainee. In my own experience and just talking with lots of other scientists, 
people seem in general more likely to hire based on skills that people have than domain-specific knowledge. And also your opportunity to take time to learn skills and not produce data is kind of a pyramid, right? Like you have lots of time as a trainee, as a professor, you have, you know, less as a postdoc, even less as a professor. You just have too many other demands on your time. And so, you know, I would make the, make, take the opportunity to uh, focus on training while you're a trainee and not just like feel like you have to collect data immediately because that's what your PI hired you to do. It's important that you take the time to develop skills. Um, third, gain quantitative skills, right? Everybody, everybody should gain quantitative skills in my opinion. Everyone should learn how to code. You know, I don't care how hard of a sort of gene jock you are in the lab, like you should be able to anal rigorously analyze the data that you're producing. Pretty much all data now is quantitative. And so get some stats education, learn to code in Python, R, MATLAB, Mathematica, Julia. I don't care what it is. One language, that's all you need. Just choose one that you can Google the answers to when you have problems. So Python is great. R is great. MATLAB is great. Um, and you know, maybe take some hard math classes that you're uh, nervous about taking because it's going to take a lot of time, right? But the only time when you'll really have to push yourself is when you're still a trainee. So I would, I would recommend doing it now because you probably won't have the opportunity so much in the future. And these skills are just generally useful. Like if you can code, if you can analyze data, not only will you use those skills and it's a valuable thing to do, but in addition, once you learn analytical tools, it'll change the way you do experiments. You may learn that you can do image analysis pretty easily. And now all of a sudden, rather than counting colonies by hand, you just, in, you know, you, you have your cell phone, you take pictures of it and you run it through a Python script that you wrote that counts colonies for you in a pipeline. Right. And so now you can just take pictures super fast. Those things are like they're little things like that, like are will just change the way you do experiments. So, you know, allow the 10,000 brooms of Walt Disney's Fantasia of computer programs <laughs> to do your bidding and be the, you know, be the puppet master of, of, of the computer. Um, fourth, it's critical that you learn to write well and give killer talks. That is the window upon which the world sees your science. And presentation quality is essential. It's just, it's just a fundamental part of being competitive. It's not just the window to which people see your stuff. It's also the only time that they have stuff to evaluate when they're making competitive decisions. So you're applying for a fellowship. You're applying, you know, trying to get a paper accepted at a competitive journal. You're applying for fellowships. You're applying for grants. You're applying for jobs. All of these things are going to reflect back onto papers and talks and maybe posters, right? But and so... The good news is, is that it is, there are well-worn paths of pedagogy that are, that are, you know, allow you to do a very good job uh, delivering, writing great papers and delivering great talks. It's not a mystery. This isn't writing the great American novel. Scientific presentation and writing is actually an incredibly stereotypical art form. You know, there's a certain pattern to it. <laughs> and once you learn that pattern, then you just have to get good at doing it. But, but it's, it's not a mystery. One thing I recommend doing, there's a lot of style guides out there. I even have my own. I call it the David Attenborough uh, method for scientific speaking. I have a two-pager if you want to read it. Um, we could probably stick that in the show notes too. But uh, the other thing that I recommend doing for everybody is if you're a newer scientist, you're probably reading papers and watching talks for content. And you're just trying to understand what they're talking about. But if you find a paper that you really like, what I would recommend do is re doing is read it again but the way that an architect would view a house. Try to figure out how the paper is put together. 
you know, you know, you liked it, right? But like, how is it argued? How is it structured? So for example, how did they define the field? Define the gap in the knowledge within the context of that field? How do they say what they were doing and connect what they were doing to that gap in the knowledge? How do they explain their results in the context of closing the gap in that knowledge? And then how do they explain how their results change the way that we think about that broader topical area? Literally every good paper does exactly that. It's not hard. That's this is a recipe. And read papers that you like. Heck, you can read any of my papers in the last five years. I literally use that recipe. <laughs> you could diagram it out. <laughs> Just read my abstract. Read any abstract from my group, and you'll see exactly that pattern because the abstract is a mini encapsulation of the entire argument of a whole paper. And just get good at, you know, if you, what I did when I was a grad student, I wanted to learn how to write is I found a paper I really liked. It was by Paul Rainey, if you know who Paul Rainey is. Um, and I literally took the paper and I took my own stuff and I wrote the same style. I was like, okay, he's using this. Oh, that's a cool trend. And I, I totally just, you know, like copied his mojo for paper writing. And then I kind of developed my own style, but like that was a breakthrough for me. Cause I was like, ah, now I see how it's done. And that's not plagiarism. It's, just following someone else's style and mode of making an argument, that's totally fine. And it might cut the Gordian knot for you. And, and if you're struggling with writing, try that out. All right, I know I'm taking a while here, but hopefully this is good advice. Uh, fifth, lab fit, it's critical. And there's kind of no magic, magic recipe here, right? Like it's a lot of just individual, individual interactions, right? So if you joined a lab, you felt like it didn't work, before you quit science, right? Like before you say it's on you, maybe try another lab, right? Because some advisors who are really good advisors are only good advisors to certain students. And some advisors who are terrible advisors might be a great advisor to a different student. There's just a lot of individual matching because everyone has their own styles. As an advisor myself, um, I'm really astonished at how different the needs of the trainees in my group are. It's not like everyone has the same needs. In fact, everyone's different. And one of the hardest challenges for me is actually figuring out what people need and, and figuring out how I can give that to them. But it takes a while. And uh, some, you know, some, everyone has their own intrinsic way of mentoring and, and, and that will work really well with some people and it won't work so well with others. And there's ways to get around that, but often it takes some effort and some work. And so, you know, if you find, and it's not just the PI, it's the whole lab, right? You'll spend more time with your colleagues in the lab than you will with the PI, by far, by far, at least in the book, in all the labs I know. And so make sure you like the lab culture, make sure you like the lab people, make sure it's supportive, and also make sure you like the PI. But if you can do rotation, I highly, highly recommend it. Like in EEB, we often direct recruit based on a few conversations, a few emails, and maybe a Zoom conversation, and then someone's going to make a five-year commitment to your lab. It's just not wise. You, it's much better if you can spend uh, spend half a semester working in someone's lab and actually getting to know if, if you like it or not. So by, by all means, take the opportunity to rotate if you can. All right, sixth and second to last, no matter what you end up doing after your PhD, you're not a failure. There's often a bias in academia that professors think that anything short of following in their footsteps and becoming a professor is you know, is a failure. And that is, for lack of a better word, it's bullshit. It's, it's people that have extreme survivor bias. They are the lucky few that made it through. And now they think, well, we should all be able to do that, right? No, that's, that's their perspective. That's their survivor bias. And, and it's not the case. We don't have exponential growth in the number of professors in this country. And so 
think of graduate school as a is not just an opportunity to become a professor, but an opportunity to learn a, an apprenticeship in science, a way of structured thinking that you're not going to get from undergraduate, certain skills that you'll have in the laboratory. Again, another reason to learn skills. Those translate really well in industry if you want to do that. But literally, no matter what you do after graduate school, it's not a failure, right? It probably played an important role in your path in your career, plus just your development as a person. And don't see yourself as a failure. Uh, finally, be cool to your fellow scientists. Collaborate. Be inclusive and when warranted. And you know, I think that's most of the time. Be generous. It's going to make you happier. It's going to lead to more interesting and productive collaborations. You're going to be more productive in the number of papers you write if you're inviting people to join your papers and they're inviting you to join theirs. And it's just a funner way to do science than being territorial and competitive over the bounds of your work. And so uh, anyway, that's, that's all I have to say on advice. That's some amazing advice. Thank you so, so much for your time today and for coming on our show. I really enjoyed speaking to you. Likewise, thank you so much for having me and it's been great to chat.